Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of the podcast, Moleskine's director of brand and PR, Eric Fabian, talks to me all about how a notebook can serve as a platform for your imagination and the pillars for building an iconic brand. Eric, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Hey, thanks. I'm really stoked to be here. Yeah, uh, it is really, really cool to have you here. Uh, You know, Mike Rohde, a former guest, connected both of us, and uh, he mentioned that you are the director of marketing and PR at Moleskin. And given that I am somebody who lives and dies by these notebooks, I mean, I have stacks of them. I literally just opened a new one today. Uh, I I figured, you know, this had to be an interesting conversation and one we had to have. So uh, on that note, can you tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your story, your journey, uh, your background, and how that has led you to this uh, really cool job, it sounds like. Sure, yeah. Um, Well, I'll give you specifically where I sit now is I am the director of uh, brand and PR at Moleskine America. So my world, my kind of scope is all of the Americas from north, from Canada down to Latin America. And, uh, you know, my day-to-day is like, you know, my responsibility is, to kind of uphold and share the the values that are really behind the Moleskin brand, um, you know, to kind of increase ultimately the kind of love people feel for the brand. Mm-hmm. And I think I got here through probably a rather untraditional path. My background's in the arts, um, doing things like theater and performance art. Um, I, you know, went to a, a kind of an experimental college for undergrad and then got an MFA um, from uh, art school um, for my graduate experience. And, uh, you know, I've always been somebody who's just very curious. You know, I I like to learn. You know, it's probably my kind of central hobby in life. And uh, I, you know, I've always been interested in kind of people and how they interact and um, kind of shaping those interactions through creating events and different kinds of um, experiential um, kind of uh, projects. And... uh, you know, the kind of long story short, I, you know, as I, when I came to New York after uh, grad school, you know, I consulted for a while. I was doing kind of experiential kind of event type work for marketing companies as well as doing kind of group facilitation around ideation and, and uh, different kinds of, uh, you know, things to help nonprofits, whether for kind of strategic, strategic planning or other uh, sorts of things like that. And, uh, I just kind of stumbled into meeting somebody who was, you know, looking for somebody 
in uh, kind of a PR and events role at, at Moleskin. Um, initially, I thought they were somebody I was going to kind of pitch a, you know, a, a brainstorm to, you know, something that, you know, they, they were asking me like, hey, do you know any uh, Williamsburg creatives? And, uh, and, you know, I thought I could, you know, bring some people together to kind of help them ideate around some issue or something. But, um, you know, it turned out they were looking for somebody who, um, you know, understood the, you know, the kind of core fan base of, of that, you know, really enjoy Moleskin and, um, and it just kind of ended up being a good fit. Hmm. So, uh, I definitely want to talk about that in a bit more depth, but, uh, you know, one of the things that's always interesting to me is to look at, uh, sort of the formative experiences and moments of significance, uh, you know, in people's adolescence and early life that would ultimately lead them down the path that they would go on. And I'm curious what some of yours were. Well, um, I suppose formative experiences. I think that, you know, I, I always was, uh, kind of a a curious person and, you know, I read a lot. I, you know, I grew up pre-internet and, uh, you know, so I spent a lot of time with books. I consumed a ton of media and, you know, in the form of television and movies. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of moved around a bit when I was younger and, um, and had, uh, you know, kind of the experience of, uh, eventually kind of tiptoeing my way from, uh, maybe kind of doing things more like sports and such into kind of finding like theater and, you know, doing kind of creative activities and getting involved with creative people. Um, and I think that I always was somebody, you know, even very young who, you know, liked to put on shows for my parents, my grandparents, and, you know, liked to kind of imagine scenarios when I was playing with toys and, you know, I put together huge kind of, you know, battles and such with, you know, the things I would play with as a kid. And I think that something about like the combination of like an inherent interest in like organizing things and, uh, kind of a, a, you know, a joy for kind of, you know, making jokes and kind of making people laugh and, you know, um, and, you know, getting up and kind of performing, doing improvisation, you know, stuff like that, um, kind of led me down the route. And I think that, you know, for a long time, I don't know if I knew what I wanted to do with myself. Um, but I, you know, was taking some classes, some college classes, uh, you know, right after high school in the, in the town I was living in, um, in Virginia. And, uh, I had one teacher who was a, you know, kind of art teacher who, you know, was taking just kind of foundation kind of art class. And she was somebody who like, you know, I made some sketch or something and she actually said to me, it's like, you know, art is something that you should do. And, uh, you know, even now that still stands out as one of the moments that kind of just broke through the haze where somebody actually said, Hey, this is something that you should consider doing. And, you know, it's something I took pleasure in. And while I didn't necessarily become like a visual artist or, or, or any, you know, anything along those lines, I always kind of think of myself more in terms of relationships and space and, you know, in other ways. Um, I think something about that sensibility, um, was definitely very much a part of me from, from that age. Um, I don't know. I think that, you know, my, I, I, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, my parents divorced when I was young. I kind of, I think developed relationships and found, uh, you know, moving around a lot. I think there was also something inherent about doing theater when I was young that was like 
really connected to the spirit of play and mm -hmm. something that, you know, I think it's lost as you kind of transition into adolescence and, um, you, uh, you know, life becomes much more serious and, you know, people are trying to, uh, kind of suddenly, you know, girls and boys are looking at each other different. And, and I think that there's a, there's certain innocence and kind of a, a, a real sense of community that's inside that world that really appealed to me mm -hmm. when I was young. Um, so I think, you know, some of those things were probably strong kind of impact influences, um, initially. Mm. So why do you think it is that, uh, as adults, we lose that sort of boundless creativity and sense of play that you spoke of? Wow. Well, it, you know, I think people talk about it a lot and I think, you know, there's, there's certainly just the kind of pragmatic stuff of like, you know, we have to feed ourselves and we have to, to work to achieve that. And it takes our time and we often are doing things that we don't necessarily always enjoy. And, and I think that, um, you know, probably for a lot of people, there's a sense of kind of, um, you know, maybe embarrassment or kind of, uh, worry about how you're perceived and all that kind of stuff as you get older and, and, you know, their livelihoods might be tied to it or their sense of social status. Um, I, I, I was somebody that didn't buy into that. I, I suppose I've always kind of really trusted my sense of joy in that sense and, and, and found it very important. Hmm. Um, the, uh, but you know, I, I think that, you know, I remember being in like my twenties, particularly, you know, I was in my twenties and the nineties and, you know, there was a, the, the strong kind of creative, uh, kind of explosion and kind of a sense of kind of, uh, a lot of irony and a lot of kind of, um, uh, kind of feeling of like our adolescence, you know, kind of shaped us and we've lost this, this precious thing in our youth. And I, I think there is a, a way of thinking about this that, you know, is a little bit, um, not true in the sense that, you know, I don't, I don't think childhood is specific, you know, it's really, um, enlightenment you know i don't think the innocence of childhood is is equal to kind of the transcendence of like uh, you know the things that we feel confine us as adults um i think in some ways there's a kind of there's a joy to that kind of naivete and the openness but i think there's also just a, a sense of um you know kind of developmentally you are kind of more egocentric and more kind of um uh, you know, just aware of yourself and a smaller kind of world around you. And as you grow, you know, I've kind of always bought into this developmental idea that, you know, you transcend and include things. And you kind of, as you kind of expand as a person and your consciousness, you are aware of a greater world and you're aware of yourself within that world. And you have kind of a position in that world. And, and I think negotiating what that is takes time. And so I, I think, Sometimes what gets lost perhaps is this sense of play because you realize that you impact the world in a much more powerful way and that the world also isn't just there to kind of serve your pleasures and, you know, your uh, kind of moment-to-moment uh, -moment kind of, uh, you know, kind of need. Um, so, I, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's a complicated issue for sure. Yeah. Um you know, it's interesting when I listen to you describe that, uh, I think about surfers, uh, I'm an avid surfer and I, I learned to surf when I was 30 and I always wonder if little kids 
see it as this spiritual practice as an adult does. Like their entire concept of it must be so different than mine because at that age, what do you really know about spirituality and transcending yourself and these kinds of things? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think, I mean, you don't know much of anything. You're just kind of like, you're, you know, you just don't have a, a large enough body of experience. And like, I, I think that you may have urges and kind of things that feel right that kind of guide you a bit. And mm-hmm. then you have the, the good fortune or, you know, the bad luck to be exposed to a different kind of set of things. But, um, the, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's like, I, I don't mean to frame like, one kind of person is like more holy or something than a, than a child or, you know, anything like that. But the, uh, but I, I do think that, um, the richness of life kind of expands with, with more experience and more, uh, kind of understanding and, and, and the capacity to kind of take that into account is, is, is kind of the magnificent opportunity of life. And, and I'm, I'm really interested, actually, I'm about to have, I'm about to become a dad and, my um I have a son that's about to be born in in a few weeks and uh and I'm really curious to kind of as somebody who's you know I'm approaching fatherhood for the first time a, a little bit later in life and the uh and you know I've kind of been through a lot of different kind of stages of my own growth and and to kind of help a person come into the world and to try to figure out what you offer them like what kind of experiences you offer this this little creature mm-hmm. when they are coming into the world basically is like, you know, an animal and, uh, and, but have this capacity to become, you know, who knows what, um, it's really curious and it's really, um, kind of, you know, an epic kind of, uh, kind of opportunity and kind of, uh, just kind of something that's humbling, you know, you know, one of the things that you brought up earlier was theater, uh, giving you this sense uh, of community and belonging. And it was interesting to hear you say that because a a friend of mine from high school uh, who was in theater and also happened to be in band with me recently went back to, uh, you know, the retirement party for the theater teacher. And he said, you know, she basically gave an entire band of people who felt they didn't belong anywhere, a place to belong to. And, you know, and I've heard that, you know, it's interesting because you've echoed that sentiment. And I'm wondering in adult life, how you find that sense of community in something. You know, I think about that a lot. You know, I live in New York City. I live in Brooklyn and work in in Manhattan. And uh, this place is huge. And it's it's made up of lots of of little communities, um, you know, that and some of them are very old and some of them are new. And, you know, everything just changes here constantly. But there is a particular kind of dynamic um, based on the kind of economic reality of, of New York and, you know, everybody's busy, everybody works really hard. And so relationships you have do, I think in, in my world do tend to kind of, um, focus around work. You know, I spend most of my day with my coworkers at, at Moleskin and, uh, and, you know, I, uh, Moleskin's based in Italy. So I, you know, I talk with people overseas quite regularly, um, and you know, obviously there's people in my office and there's, uh, and then the kind of the different kind of acquaintances I make through, uh, my work of kind of working with other brands and other kind of creative people and, you know, and so on, like that's a big piece of what, um, my life is about. And I think, um, the other thing I really noticed in New York is that the, uh, it, you know, 
the space that you have to occupy, like, you know, you know, most people live in relatively small apartments and you just don't have a ton of space to bring a lot of people together. And, and, uh, you know, one of the things my wife and I, you know, we met when we lived in Chicago, um, you know, during grad school and, you know, there it's just a bigger, more spread out city. People tend to have a bit more space and, you know, we tended to have the space to kind of bring people together for parties, for dinner parties and so on. And the, uh, you know, and I think having space to enables kind of a certain kind of community and the lack of space kind of prevents it or encourages other kinds of community. I think people tend to meet up out in the world more here in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously, so like having time to be together, space to be together, I think that's a, it's a big thing. Um, I also, you know, think about, I used to live, I went to school in Olympia, Washington, and, uh, and lived there for about five years. And, um, and that city, you know, just still kind of really, you know, is, um, very important to me. And it's like, because of the power of the community there, it has such a strong kind of, uh, sense of identity, both kind of artistically and, um, you know, in, in the kind of different social communities that are there. And there's a real ethic of like, um, you know, gathering for potlucks and, and different kinds of uh, kinds of ways of kind of sharing and expressing and so on, and uh, and that you know is you know relatively a small town and the uh, you know people tend to have more time. You're really right there on top of nature and you can kind of go out into that if you if you wish and uh, and so there's a a sense that you know you can go down to the downtown, go to the you know one or two basic you know kind of streets that have meeting areas or bars or wherever and you're bound to run into somebody you know whereas in new york you know once in a while maybe i run into somebody on the subway you know but it you know or some kind of event where i know certain kind of people are going to go to but it's you know it's it's just not the same thing so i it, it takes a lot more work i feel like to create community here and i and i feel like i uh probably would crave more of it and you know it's and would like to figure out ways to do it to get you know deeper relationships, but I also you know understand that the the reality of where I am is, is the reality of what it is. Hmm. You know, one of the the questions that brings up for me, uh, especially as somebody who has had your hands so close to events, uh, is an observation about how we have really become obsessed almost with building online communities, and yet I don't know that that can replace the act of getting together in person. There's something just very different about it. And it's not just a, a, not a question per se, but I'm just interested in hearing what you might have to say about that. Yeah, I I totally believe that, um, online communities are really, they're really interesting. Like, you know, I, I've seen, I saw online forums kind of emerge in the nineties and, you know, become things. And I've had different groups that maybe I've spent time with and, you know, usually they're around a topic, maybe you're sharing ideas or, you know, something you create or, or whatever. Um, so you can kind of delve really deeply into kind of, um, intellectual obsessions or, you know, around, you know, different kinds of, um, things you care about with other people who care about things really intensely, but you also aren't forced to, uh, put up with people in the same way as if you would, you know, kind of, met them in a class at school or, you know, if you went to an art residency or, you know, you just kind of had to deal with them as, as physical people in space. Um, it's not also not quite as efficient, you know, to be with people in physical space. Mm-hmm. But I think that I'm, 
you know, relatively physical person. And I, and, and I think partially what I like about performance and what I've always liked about sports and things like martial arts and, and so on is that, you know, it's, uh, you, uh, you know, the physical embodiment of space and like the act of moving and, and you know, touching people, like, you know, I've always observed that, um, if you, if you, a community of like martial artists who chain train together or dancers who train together are going to, or yoga people maybe who, you know, train together and, and are very kind of doing some sort of mutually supportive kind of um, posturing that, um, they're going to develop a much quicker, deeper relationship because they break through some of the kind of social boundaries that we have that have to do with kind of personal space and the sense of physical touch. Mm. And, and I think that, um, that in itself is very, I've always seen it as a very powerful kind of insight because it's like, you know, whenever I've kind of created events or wanted to, um, help people kind of get comfortable with with each other or to try to express themselves in an event, you know, giving people opportunities to be together within a kind of, you know, a thoughtfully kind of constructed, um, container of some sort, the, you know, if, if I force them to kind of be close or if I force them to kind of have to like, you know, engage each other physically in some way, they're going to break through a lot of barriers a lot quicker. Um, and, you know, and there's other things too. And, and I think even, I mean, you know, I'm sure you have thoughts on this just as may who is, you know, always talking to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I've always liked doing interviews and, and different kind of conversations as well, because, you know, I think there's a difference between talking to people one-on-one, which I think is really pleasurable because you can kind of go deep and you can, um, you can kind of, uh, call back on a conversation and kind of pick apart ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's something else nice about having groups of people and having kind of, you know, multiple kind of inputs and, you know, different kinds of, uh, Kind of surprises and you know different kinds of tones yeah i don't know i could talk about that stuff for a long time <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think you and i both could i mean it's such a it's like very deep and rich territory that you could spend an entire hour just talking about that alone yeah. uh but yeah I, I i would have to agree i think there's something very intimate about having these one-on-one conversations where you get a level of depth uh that i don't necessarily think you get you know when you say okay here's my blog post for a thousand people to read, but I don't have a connection to each individual reader. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and all the, all the, when we talk about any kind of art or any kind of artifice, like, you know, whether it's text or, or visuals or the, you know, some sort of physical dance or something, these are all abstractions of, of the world. And it's like, and, you know, for the sake of communication and for the sake of, entertainment and for the sake of economics and all kinds of whatever else you're dealing with, you can't present everything. Like the heart, I think the hardest thing in art is to like offer up the world for what it is. Right. And like you, uh, you know, I think that's what's strong about like the old, like Zen haiku type stuff or some of the very grand kind of like, um, minimalist kind of earth art type things that you see in the world. Like, you know, there's attempts to offer up the world and its wholeness and, um, and, but you know, it's, it, you know, I think life is about kind of navigating those constraints. Hmm. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you, one of the things that really, uh, intrigued me about some of what you said in the earlier part of your story was that you had attended an experimental college mm-hmm. and, I am always very curious about education and, you know, how people have been educated in order to get to where they're at. And also 
you know, it, it, for me, it always gives me an opportunity to open up a, uh, the landmine of the current state of education. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really interested in hearing more uh, about the experience of going to this experimental college. Right. So I went to um, a school called the Evergreen State College. It's in Olympia, Washington. It's a, It was founded at the very kind of end of the the Cultural Revolution, you know, late 60s, maybe just like 71, something like that. Mm. And uh, the experiment there was to create a, a state school that um, uh, took on um, the mandate of like not having grades, not having really set classes and, you know, kind of coming out of a lot of the free thinking type stuff of the, you know, the 60s and and trying to say if we created curriculums that were, you know, most most often seminar based, you know, around books, around the kind of uh, conversation among peer learners with uh, the facilitation of a, you know, some sort of experienced, you know, kind of professor type person um, that people would, uh, you know, kind of learn, learn well and interesting and develop as people. And uh, for me, you know, I thought it was a very kind of strong experience and you know i could have stayed there honestly for years and years and just explored different things i I think that um it it, you know i I transferred in after doing some college credits you know where i I grew up and i think a lot of people do kind of transfer into that kind of program as a slightly older student and um i found that the people who didn't handle it well perhaps came right in as a freshman and like right out of high school and maybe we're a little overwhelmed by the level of um, responsibility and freedom that you were offered. Mm. Um, But the, uh, you know, the idea for me, you know, I wasn't very happy with my high school kind of experience. And I, you know, I was just kind of feeling like underwhelmed by the, you know, what I was learning and how it was challenging me and kind of, you know, what I wanted to do. And I think that um, the idea that I could shape a class and, you know, build what they call contracts at, um, at the school was really phenomenal because like, you know, you, you basically are mimicking the real world in the sense that you are bringing together resources like an entrepreneur might and you are trying to put a framework around that as far as like what you hope to achieve, how you're going to measure that and, you know, kind of what, you, you know, how you get from A to B. Then at the end, you kind of review it and you kind of get feedback and, you know, that kind of um, option to kind of take control of your um you know, of your kind of education and of of your own kind of curiosity is, you know, I think very powerful. And, and I have to say, I, you know, it was in a English class that I took before that, where I kind of realized that at a certain point that I was like, I, uh, I think I just took ownership of, of my education, like kind of, I just recognized it or something. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, would always read a lot and kind of followed my curiosities, but like there was a point where I was just like surrounded in a class by people who weren't like doing like a writing assignment or something. And they're kind of like goofing off. And I was like, I'd been doing lots of creative writing classes and, you know, kind of had found that, you know, doing certain kinds of writing were really exciting to me and, you know, motive, I was, I had self-motivation to kind of get things done. And, and I think that um, I recognized that suddenly there was a gap between me and some of the other students because I had kind of discovered in that, you know, why I wanted to do these things. And then I think once I had that, going to a place like Evergreen was, you know, a good fit because I was like, 
I didn't always know exactly what I was looking for and, you know, or how to get there and, you know, and what was maybe the best use of my time. And, you know, I was still like, you know, in my you know early twenties or whatever, but the, uh, but I, but just the idea that I could kind of shape that and be a participant in what that was, was great. And then, you know, and just the way that, um, I think was also powerful. I took away. It's like, you know, they put a lot of focus on, you know, through these kind of seminars and these kind of conversations, um, horizontal thinking and kind of, you know, lateral thinking. So it's like opening, you know, just opening up conversations and opening up texts and, you know, kind of looking at things in a way that like, you know, uh, encourage you to ask questions about something and, you know, kind of raise a, a lot of issues and kind of look at things from different perspectives and bring in different cultural po points of view. And, and I think that, um, that's really powerful, but also I think that's incomplete. And I think that um, the uh, the one thing right after I finished school there that I kind of spent some time doing is really thinking about okay, so it's great if I can open things up in kind of a wide way, but and you know, and, and there's a kind of an embedded kind of um, kind of distaste for any kind of hierarchies and the kind of you know power structures that maybe exist in in society, but still, it's like life is you know, there's restraints and constraints and, and like, how do you prioritize things and how do you, um, you know, place value on things? Like what is, what is better than another? Or do we just live in this kind of great blob of like everything at once? And, uh, so I spent some time kind of thinking through that afterwards, uh, to kind of just put my mind in order a bit. But, um, but still I think it's, you know, for the right kind of person, it's a really great experience. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me that wasn't an option i never really was a salad guy that's just not who i am but noom worked for me get your personalized plan today at noom.com real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. As somebody who's uh, about to become a father, uh, how does that experience uh, make you think about education in its current state and and how you plan to educate your own son? Mm. I don't know. I mean, the... You know, my wife, she, she has spent a lot of time, you know, uh, working with nonprofits, art nonprofits and doing education. And, um, and so she has got really strong opinions about it probably knows more quickly about, uh, the education of younger folks than I do. So it's like, to some degree, I'm going to look to her for her thoughts, but, you know, I think we're likely candidates for doing some sort of alternative education, you know, Montessori type thing or something mm-hmm. uh, early on. I, I need to look into it more to really uh, figure out, I guess, my position on that piece. But um, I do think project-based learning is powerful. I think being exposed to lots of stuff and, you know, different cultures is powerful. But, you know, I think that also from my experience when I've taught college, um, you know, I, I've always just kind of asked questions and, um, it felt like I'm pretty good at listening. And I think that, you know, if you can kind of be perceptive, you, I think you can help people learn. And, and so the first thing I think to do with a kid is just to listen to them and especially at the very beginning. And I, I kind of feel like I'm getting also this feedback from people when they talk to me about newborns is that, you know, they can't communicate very well, but they do communicate all the time. And so you, the first thing you have to do is learn what their cries and their movements are, you know, and the basic things they're trying to express as far as hunger and, you know, whatever. And so I, I think that just listening to who this person is and trying to kind of decode them as much as I can, you know, as a starting point, it's probably something that will be with me as it grows. Um, I do think there's a lot of experiments going on in education, you know, whether from people who are building programs that are around, you know, game kind of systems or, you know, um, other kinds of ideas, you know, whether it's like reading classical kind of literature or whatever. Um, you know, I think they probably all have certain merits and, um, but I, and I, and I, at the end of the day, I probably, if I was creating like an experience, I would probably do something that looks like evergreens kind of very open curriculum. I would probably make that something more like you experienced in high school. And then, you know, what I experienced in grad school, which is a little bit more focused, I think is more what I, I think college should look like. And then, you know, I think grad school should be probably just a, you know, kind of a deeper kind of, you know, experience that looks something more like a PhD or something that looks more like a incubator for startups or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, 
but who knows, you know, it's like the, the kid might end up being, you know, going to like, <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, a frat school or something. <laughs> um, well, let's do this. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, how to build an iconic brand. I mean, you know, one of the things you mentioned was that uh, you really are, are sort of, you know, a catalyst for the brand values of this brand that people absolutely love. Like it, you know, by, by all logical accounts, it makes no sense that I spend $20 on a notebook. Uh, but I have stacks of them and I swear by them. So I'm going to talk about how that happens, uh, and, and what it is that drives that kind of fanaticism, uh, and evangelism for a brand. Sure. Well, it's a big, you know, it's a big topic. And I think that, um, the, Moleskin has a lot going for it, you know. It, you know, I think most people know Moleskin, the brand, for the notebooks, and um, you know, inherent in the design of that object, which is a very nice design, and um, is a lot of ideas that are bigger than that object. And you know, we think of them as um, you know platforms for people's imagination and for organizing their lives and you know spaces that are both public and private and uh so you know and that comes from this idea it's a blank page and and i think that um from that one idea you can kind of talk about like how Wolfskin communicates um the brand mm-hmm. uh nowadays you can talk about how that's a, you know kind of been a driver behind how we've kind of exp- you know, kind of expanded the, the company in, in terms of, um, collections and, you know, we make bags and pens and, you know, different things now. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, and it, but also I think, you know, any brand is kind of built around at least three kind of pillars to me. It's like the, uh, you know, there's the functional, design and the kind of aesthetic design of that object you know that's 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 obviously has to be quality or you know a, a brand is not going to be able to hold itself uh up if that that base isn't there um the community that gathers around it is also very important um you know just one thing i might say about moleskin community is that you know they're always it's a very impressive group of people to me you know and you know they're always very creative people a lot of a lot of production happens inside of moleskin notebooks and Moleskin was fortunate to kind of come up in the late nineties, right around the time blogs were starting and, um, you know, and people needed something to fill their blogs with. So they would take pictures of what they would create in their notebooks and they would, uh, take pictures of the, the kind of hacks that they would do their notebooks. Like, you know, the, the, the get things done community, for instance, were early adopters of the Moleskin notebook and, you know, would hack it up to make it fit to the kind of organizational system that, you know, they found and, and I think that um, so that community really um, takes the inherent viral nature of the object, and you know the fact that it's a blank page that they then you know kind of put their creativity into and add color to, and then they you know have their own kind of incentive to share it. And now that you know paired with all these kind of you know technological tools we have now, they're able to share it you know quite broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, that community is able to you know really kind of help the brand grow, but also find each other and kind of, you know, share the esteem of, you know, making things together, which is, you know, you know, in line with what Moleskine is about. Um, and then, you know, and I think the other thing is the, the values and, you know, I think that the, the founders have been very good at keeping the Moleskine brand consistent to, uh, you know, a core feeling of, of values and, 
you know, the words change a little bit now and then, but it, it's still kind of, you know, tied to kind of an appreciation for and a support of kind of talented people. And, you know, not just in the sense of grand artists, but like the, you know, and not just artists of the past, but like artists today, but also, you know, anybody, you know, whatever people do well. And, you know, culture and creativity is so broad now, you know, it's, it, it includes things like writing and drawing and, and those kind of classic disciplines, but it's also gardening and, you know, making robots or like, you know, organizing outings or, you know, you know, making, a, you know, your own knives or, you know, whatever. And it's like the, um, you know, so you find people who are inspired by, you know, objects in the, that contain the values that are associated with moleskin, you know, in startup culture and, you know, traditional kind of creative disciplines of design, architecture and art. Um, but also in moms and, you know, Wall Street folks. And, you know, I, I've met bankers who tell me that they, you know, use a Moleskine notebook when they wake up at 2 a.m. and they have an idea. You know, it's like, it's so it, that that notion of kind of talent is broad and, and is really rooted in, you know, a notion of inclusivity and trying to kind of be able to speak to this very broad kind of community of people that we, that we kind of um, uh, have taken on Moleskine as, as, a, as an object that they enjoy. Um, and I think that, um, you know, also just, you know, notions of kind of being open and exploring, exploring the world is obviously very powerful. Um, and I think, you know, we're also thinking in terms of like, you know, personal identity, you know, this is, these are, these are symbols that people take on that are not just about, um, fashion, but about, you know, self-expression and about kind of you know, creating the symbols that, you know, people might want to have close to them, you know, as they move about the world. Um, I, I also probably would throw out just, you know, it's useful to think about the insight that, um, was behind the brand, you know, when it kind of got founded and, you know, the, this woman, uh, Maria, who's the VP of the brand, you might say she's, she's still part of the company and she heads up the, the, the group that I'm a part of. Um, she kind of came up with the, the idea of moleskin and, you know, and, it, and she, um, you know, discovered the, the word moleskin in a book by an English travel writer named Bruce Chatwin. Um, he wrote a book called Songlines. It's a, it's kind of a, a, a travel kind of memoir, uh, looking at Australia and Aborigines out there and, um, and this kind of poetic notion of travel that they have, where they kind of follow these, um, what they call song lines. And there's like a song that kind of leads you across these grand landscapes. And it's like, you know, this notion of being able to wander and wander anywhere and to kind of explore the world. But it's, uh, it's, a it's, it's, it's not just about like travel as far as a place, but it's about a journey and it's a journey that transforms you. And like, so this notion of travel and, you know, um, it was really tied to the early notion of Moleskin as a brand. And, you know, he used to write about his notebooks and he called them Moleskin notebooks um that um you know these are more important to me than my passport because all of his ideas and writings were inside of them and and uh and so maria found discovered found this and she was like oh yeah i were you know i remember these notebooks that you know she was living in paris in you know her youth and and up until the 80s this style of notebook was made by book binders there and uh so she kind of tracked it down and figured out how they disappeared and you know kind of put this together and recognized early on that, you know, um, as kind of global travel becomes more affordable, you know, as kind of airline, the price of an airline ticket, you know, kind of went down, 
this a kind of global class of kind of nomadic people would emerge and you know this you know ultimately this kind of creative class of travelers um, would need objects like a Moleskin notebook to kind of help distinguish who they were. Hmm. Wow. Uh, so one of the questions that raises for me uh, about these sort of three pillars of a brand, design, community, and values, is how people might bring that into their own work. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and um, and I think that you know, I'm still unpacking in, in my ideas around this, but um, the, you know, I think you can use it first as if you're starting a new brand, the, you can use it as a check, you know, it's like, am I taking into account community? Am I taking into account the design? Am I thinking about design in terms of just function or am I thinking of it and also in terms of kind of aesthetics or am I just creating something that's kind of a shallow design? It's decorated, but you know, is not a usable object. Um, and then in terms of values, like what are my values? And, you know, when I look at my values of, of my brand or thing I'm making, are they something that propels the brand forward? Like, you know, it's like, there's not a lot of objects, honestly, like a notebook. Like it's such a great object for, um, building a brand around because of that blank page, because of the simplicity, particularly of the minimalist kind of design that, that Moleskin chose, um, you know, because people project themselves onto it. So it can be a thing for so many kinds of people. Hmm. And, and I think that, um, you know, creating brands inside of cultural space is like, that's the best place to be located because it's like, you know, it's just so positive and so empowering to people. And like, and I think that, um, you know, you're going to get interesting people there and you're going to, your community are going to be interesting people. And like that in itself is going to attract people to the project you're doing. And I think, Moleskin, I've always thought of it as as much of a creative project as it is as it is a business. And and I think that, you know, obviously it exists inside the marketplace and it, you know, you know, people are paying money for these notebooks, but you know, I think that it also does good in the sense it's creating space for people to tell stories and to create work. And the, you know, the the notebooks, like you mentioned with your notebooks, and I hear this a lot, like you know, they're designed to be kept. They're not disposable objects. And people end up with these shelves full of them. And mm-hmm. the uh, and they become more valuable with use. And you can't say that a lot about a lot of stuff. Because yeah. a lot of stuff is presented to you finished, you know. And it's like there's not room for you to add yourself to it. Um, so if you can, anybody you can create an object that, you know, has strong values, particularly if they're values that kind of are tied to this kind of productive cultural world, you know, if you can create objects that are well designed, you know, both from a utilitarian and a kind of aesthetic point of view, but then also in that object, maybe leave some space for the user to kind of put themselves into it. Um, and then if you can kind of attract a kind of creative audience, I think you're at a good starting point for sure. Hmm. You know, one of my favorite things that you said uh, was this idea of a transformational journey. And it's funny because when you said that, I thought every one of my notebooks is actually a transformational journey uh, that makes up the chapters of my life. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're always, life is a journey, right? And like, and like it's, you know, they're big ideas. And, and I, I, I think that, um, that's one thing I like about Moleskine is like, there are big, big ideas inside of the, of the Mm -hmm. company. And, uh, and the, uh, you know, and it, it does, but it's interesting too, because like, you know, we talk about, and, and Maria's really 
um, really thinks about this deeply is that, um, you know, <laughs> we're tied to travel and, you know, travel is really about what we are, but travel changes, you know, the notion of travel changes with time. And like, it's the way people kind of experience travel and mobility isn't just about that grand journey to Patagonia or to Australia or something now. It's also about this, you know, the little journey you take down the street to the cafe where you pull out your laptop and you're working on your startup or whatever. And it, it's also that kind of creative journey that, you know, a novelist or screenwriter somebody goes through when they open up their notebook and they are telling the tale. And, you know, all these things are things that change us and, you know, help us grow. And, and I think, kind of like we were talking about with events, I think that, you know, if you can offer people experiences that have a level of depth and, you know, help them break through something, it changes them a bit. And like, they're always, that's going to be unlock emotion and create um, true relationships. And whether that's just through simple human contact or through the act of creativity, which I also think is another really powerful insight for, you know, events, you know, it's like whenever I do events, you know, if I can create a situation where people are making something together, I'm going to create community. And the uh, and the same thing I think with Moleskin in a much broader kind of uh, kind of distributed way. And it's like out right now, there's people, millions of people all over the place, filling up Moleskin notebooks with their kind of dreams and ideas and drawings. And they are kind of a big global community of uh, kind of creative production happening. And it's the same kind of thing that's happening on YouTube. It's the same kind of thing that's happening through a platform like Kickstarter the same kind of thing that's happening inside of kind of laptops everywhere you know it's like the places that are platforms for people to kind of express themselves so let's do this let's talk a little bit about uh why pen and paper has remained so prevalent in an increasingly digital world uh you being in the position you're in must have a really interesting perspective on this this is yeah obviously a a it's another thing that we think about a lot. And, uh, and I think notions of kind of handwriting, the handmade, that's one of the, the topics we talk about a lot. You see a lot of um, stuff about this in the press when you, you know, um, look for Moleskin. And um, I think that, you know, Moleskin doesn't take an antagonistic um, view on the digital world. You know, we're, we're designing for the digital world. We are within the digital world. The, the brand came up, like I mentioned, because in part the, digital world enabled the the sharing of the things that were happening inside the notebook and um there's something you know just aesthetically very pleasing about that kind of black rectangle of the classic notebook and you know i remember when blackberry tried to make a play to do a, a tablet you know there they mentioned how that you know they looked to the moleskin notebook for inspiration around the design and when the the ipad mini came out is like they somebody did an article around the curve of the of the corner of the mini exactly ma- matches the curve of the of the moleskin notebook and like and th- none of this is like planned you know it's like no i don't think that neither apple nor nor moleskin designed the curve to match but there is something inherently uh pleasing about that shape and about how it fits as an object that you want to carry with you and and so there's like these kind of aesthetic kind of connections within the digital world and you know the the notion of travel and mobility kind of like uh, we were talking about it you know is also connected you know because it's enabled by you know wi-fi and mobile devices and laptops to you know be able to go work in that cafe so you know we find our users have a smartphone in their pocket and they have a notebook in their pocket they know how to jump between both. They have their workflows down. And if anything, people 
design a very particular workflow for themselves and it's part of how they kind of express themselves and mature as kind of productive creative people um but then also we see the way that people relate to the analog world doing things like handwriting putting a pen to paper like the meaning of that changes like the you know it it becomes more of a conscious act and um you know something that you know perhaps it's done for leisure or is done for a specific kind of purpose because you don't have to write a letter anymore but if you write a letter in this day and age it's going to have impact because nobody writes letters anymore you know everybody's typing things all the time mm-hmm. and uh and then certainly you know people have been doing research around the the way that you know the physical experience of writing affects your memory and how you learn and you know just that kind of I think it's a broader sensory experience in a way than, you know, doing using a touch screen or a keyboard. Um, so it's like, it, it's a dialogue, you know, the analog and the digital, they're in relationship and they're always kind of shifting and kind of taught, you know, it, you know, influencing each other. But, you know, it's like the analog world's not going away. You know, any, any, anybody who's kind of like saying like, you know, books are going to go away or, you know, the pen, the pencil is going to go away, you know, I think is, you know, kind of trying to sell you something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I remember thinking that when I sat down with a moleskin, suddenly, uh, all of the constraints that I had on a computer were gone. Mm-hmm. That the tool that apparently is, you know, filled with all these infinite possibilities was actually limited by its features and functions. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a different set of constraints, honestly. Yeah. It's like, and, and I think one thing that's really beautiful about the Moleskin design is that there are very subtle constraints baked into that design that um, maybe you don't realize and are very gentle and but are there. And mm-hmm. I think, um, like, one, I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And about over, like, one thing I think just in the narrative of going through a book that is, is really amazing is the, um, is like, you open up a new book and like the first thing you encounter is this in case of loss page that's mm-hmm. in, the, in the front right and, it, yeah. and, it, and it's the only bit of the book that's really structured in a in one of our standard kind of classic notebooks right yeah. it, it asks you you know what's your name you know um and in case of loss you know where can you be contacted and like and what is the reward you would offer for that book and you know that's charming because like people obviously uh are you know, this is your first chance to kind of really personalize this thing and to create an, a, an attachment to it. You're claiming it is yours, which is powerful in itself. You're putting your name on it. Uh-huh. Um, you're choosing how the outside world might encounter this thing and, you know, how they're going to reach you. So you have this idea that this could be a public object at some point. Um, you, uh, it, it, you are also thinking about, like, what's the value of this thing? And it's not like, you know, the 12... $20, whatever you've spent for this, this book, it's, it's what it will be worth once you put your ideas into it. And like, is that worth, and then how do you quantify that? Like, is like, is that worth a bunch of money to you? Is it worth like a hug? Is it, you know, do you, are you poetic about it? Or are you kind of practical? Like, it, you know, how do you, how do you interpret this question? And it's a very simple question, but it can go in all these different directions. And by the time you just answer those three basic questions, you've built a much deeper emotional connection to this book and, and what it will be. You've imagined what it will be. And like you have also broken the seal on this thing, which Mm -hmm. can come off as very perfect. And like, you know, kind of the blank page and all the intimidation that comes with the blank page. Right. Um, but now it's not perfect anymore. You've marked it. It's, it's broken. So 
you can kind of break it some more and start writing it, you know? And, and I think that, um, you know, that's really amazing. Hmm. Well, Eric, this has been really cool. Uh, really, really thought provoking and insightful. Uh, one of those conversations that I think we'll have to replay over and over again, just to, you know, get everything out of it that you packed into it. And, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll fill lots of moleskin notebooks with, uh, insights and observations from our conversation. So I have one last question for you, uh, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? How how do you make somebody unmistakable? Um, I think that, um, you know, I think there's always two two pieces to anything kind of having the, the ring of truth. And it's like, on one hand, it's your own feeling. Like, have you lived up to what you hope to do or have you put your all into it? Have you spent the time you need to spend to kind of satisfy you? Have you, you know, kind of like athletes talk about, you know, leaving it all in the court or something. Um, and then it's also the public and it's the, uh, you know, the audience and your peers and your community and, do they respond and, and do they acknowledge what you've created? And I think that whether you're talking about science and like the scientific method and the confirmation that people are, um, you know, kind of evaluating everybody's work to see if what they're coming up with is true, or you're talking about artwork, which is often romanticized as a, as a solo endeavor that, you know, it only exists to please the artist. Um, I, I, I think that's not true. I think that all art, you know, really comes into being and becomes, communication when it's in front of other people so i think that i think probably that that really truly unmistakable moment is when you have those moments that you feel like you've put yourself fully into something you feel true about what you do and it's also recognized by the people Hmm. well uh this has been great and uh i I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh share your story uh, your journey and your insights with our listeners Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate your questions. And just, you know, it's always a privilege just to have someone take the time and listen to you. You know, it's like, I I appreciate you uh, kind of, you know, validating my ideas. That's great. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. 
the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.